You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. One of our regular areas of focus on the razor's edge is the streaming space. And there are few people who are following that space as closely as Andrew Friedman of Hedgeye, to the point where his name has come up on our episodes more than once. So it was long overdue to have him join the Razor's Edge as a guest to share what he's seeing. We focus on what's going on in streaming and whether all the new entrants will have the endurance to make it in the long term. We then drill into the story around Fubo, a company that Andrew has been vocally bearish about. We wrap up streaming with a look at Netflix's next act, and then look into the new emergence of live audio as a competitive opportunity, and wrap up with a few questions sourced from Twitter followers. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Before we begin, disclosures, Akram is long Twitter, I am long Stitch Fix, and may open a position in Twitter in coming days. Andrew has no positions. You can find a link to his work on Hedgeye in the show notes, as well as terms of service for Hedgeye as background, and a few definitions for the acronyms that came up in this episode. Follow Andrew at at Hedgeye.com, that's C-O-M-M. This was recorded Friday, March 12th. Okay, let's get started. All right, Andrew, welcome to the Razor's Edge. Nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I know. We've been uh, working on getting this on the schedule for some time here, so I'm excited we're finally getting it done. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with an area that I feel like you guys have gone back and forth, at least on Twitter. And I know Akram will often kind of refer back to in this area with streaming as a sector is really interesting. Always. We obviously have the Giants, Netflix and Disney. You've talked a lot over the years about Roku. And then you have newer entrants or at least newer publicly traded entrants like FUBU. Starting broadly, what's interesting to you right now in the streaming sector, in the video entertainment sector? Like, what are you what are you watching for as we're sort of towards the end of the pandemic, the acute pandemic environment? Look, it, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, I think the entire space was way more interesting before the Disney Plus launch because no one really knew you know what it was going to look like. Um, I mean, we were always in the camp that Disney Plus was going to come out of the gate with like this big bang approach simply because they had so many existing subscribers through their you know linear distribution channels that they would simply be able to transfer over to kind of a direct to consumer through that wholesale to retail model switch. 
but you know, there's a lot of debate and I think a lot of that uncertainty resulted in a lot of opportunity from an investment standpoint. You know, now it's kind of, we know, <laughs> you know, Disney's one year post launch, they absolutely crushed it. You know, over a hundred million direct consumer subs on Disney plus, you know, we were really bullish on Roku for a long time from the called the mid fifties and all the way up to the mid to high three hundreds, just because they were that platform. Right. And so it was very obvious that the landscape was changing at a very fast rate where all these legacy media companies that were really left for dead were going to be making a big push into direct consumer and leveraging their brands uh, in order to basically preserve their terminal value. And so fast forward to where we are today, I'm kind of kicking myself because I've always thought that at some point we would hit this point with like the Viacoms, the discoveries of the world where kind of their digital investments would become a larger part of the business and the street would start giving them more credit for that. Totally missed kind of the pivot. We covered our shorts, thank God, but like we missed the pivot to going along those companies. And so now from from what in terms of like what's most interesting to me, you know, I think the advertising shift is still early. Um, I think that has a long runway to go when it comes to linear TV advertising shifting to over the top. But what's really less interesting really is, I think, valuation and sentiment with a lot of these names. Fubo is like a classic example of just how kind of silly things have gotten in this market when it comes to anything that is OTT, CTV, streaming. It's just kind of gotten a little absurd, especially towards the end of last year. You know, things have kind of come in so far. So I, I've been I've been actually kind of shifting my focus a little bit, you know, outside the video space, looking more towards audio, which I think is a little bit earlier. There's more opportunity there, but that's uh, you know kind of how I'm thinking about the world, you know, these days. I think we'll get another shot at Roku, probably at a lower price. Disney's kind of really morphed from a direct consumer play, digital play, to kind of a reopening trade with the parks coming back online. And it kind of remains to be seen how much room we have left there. But um, I think what's been obvious to kind of just put a bow on this on it is that the terminal value for a lot of these legacy media companies, like people just got way too bearish and that the value of content and the durability of brands that a lot of these companies have just has a long tail on it. And I think people just got way too bullish on Netflix, way too bearish on the rest of the space. And we've kind of come full circle at this point. So it's going to be interesting to see where we, we land. I think we're going to see reversal at some point, but I'm not exactly sure when that's going to be. And Viacom, is just, they just put it on the screen. That's CNBC in the background. <laughs> I didn't even realize, but it's doubled in, in two months. Yeah. I mean, look, we were, it, it's been, it's been insane. We were short, quote, short, right? Because we don't, you know, research short. Uh, research opinion negative, however you want to call it. A lot of like Viacom, AMCX for most of 2019, back in the March lows, like we got lucky and I was just kicked, I kicked, I kicked them off, right? Like Viacom at 10, 12 bucks. It just, it just didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, a lot of things didn't make a lot of sense back then, right? But I mean, it was just, the question becomes at this price, like what's your catalyst? And, you know, I'm, I'm learning that I really, whenever we cover shorts, I should just, we should just go long because we also covered their short in discovery at the end of November. And that thing has just been a rocket ship. And we actually had a thesis there with, you know, the launch of discovery plus coming around the corner 
linear TV advertising trends being less bad, cord cutting trends being less bad, uh, and then the potential Olympics coming along in the summer, those coming back, you know, Discovery has outside exposure to that. And, you know, Discovery is, is unique because it's non-scripted content, right? And they have some pretty strong brands. And so the content costs associated with that and the, just the, the lifetime value, I think, is a, is a little bit higher. So we've always kind of had a positive bias towards discovery, but it was hard to really keep that bias when you're staring down what you expect to be a massive exodus of linear TV advertising dollars from the system post-COVID. So we've been whipping those things around a little bit more. But yeah, Viacom has just been an absolute beast. Everyone hated on the Viacom merger because who watches MTV and Nickelodeon anymore, right? They're kind of dying brands. But CBS, you know, broadcast is a strong asset. They launched Paramount Plus recently. But yeah, up here, it's starting to get a little more interesting, but not from a long perspective. Was there a catalyst per se to those moves with Discovery and Viacom? Or is it more just the market sort of realizing <laughs> they're going to stick around and they're just looking for any value they can find and just bid them up? Like, yeah. What is there any chance they're meme stocks? I think, yeah, I'm not sure about, maybe. There's a, I think we're, we could be getting there. I think your question on Catalyst is spot on. Look, I, I think it comes down to just buy side positioning. So for years, these were just consensus shorts and they're perceived as value traps in a low, in, low to falling interest rate environment where growth is outperforming, everyone's long Netflix, and they have the view that you know, the legacy media companies are dead. You know, obviously, cord cutting has been a very popular theme amongst investors in the last several years. Uh, we've seen it really start to happen in 2016, 2017 in a big way. And I think it's reasonable to assume that with all the launch of these OTT services, and as more and more content, the best content shifts from linear distribution to over the top, that over time, engagement leads subscribers. And so that's why we've seen the kind of the pay TV video loss that we have. However... I think what was, I think investors got too bearish, right? Because if you actually look at the trends, they haven't been that terrible, especially if you include the VMVPDs, like the YouTube TVs and the Hulu TVs of the world. You know, they've been able to recapture some of those lost subscribers. So I think that that whole narrative that like legacy media is dead, cord cuttings accelerating, just got way too, like people just got way too bearish, way too fast. Um, and Part of what we're seeing is kind of the unwind of that trade where people are just, you know, short these stocks. They got paid, you know, short interest for discovery was 30% at its peak. And I think it's still pretty high, right? Because like, I, and you can't blame people, right? You're facing declining sub trends. You're facing deteriorating unit economics. Advertising is all is pretty much 100% margin. But again, like these companies have been able to launch digital services and be able to shift some of their content to places where they can recapture some of those lost economics. And I think that's what the street was sleeping on. So a less worse scenario with the stocks down at historical lows in a rising interest rate environment where growth has just had a multi-standard deviation outperformance because of COVID and this digital pull forward. And then you can clearly see how people are just completely offside in their long short positioning. And so I do think that it's a combination of a lot of it has to do with short squeezing. If you look at kind of Viacom in 2011, like it looks very similar. I don't think it's durable. I, I really don't. 
I think a lot of it's just style factor driven for the reasons I just mentioned. But there's definitely reason to believe that people just got way too bearish on these names. Um, and so we're seeing that unwind. There's no denying that structural shorts that you know have been working for the last several years have had a, a rough time, right? So like just just like the Bed Bath and Beyond and Blackberries and anything along those lines. Uh, GameStonk. GameStop. <laughs> GameStonk. Yeah. We're exactly. gonna stay away from GameStonk. But yeah, I think that does make sense. But do you think that like when you think about the streaming space and you know we got you here, do you think going forward that we're getting to that point where it's kind of, you know, I was I was seeing the data and I was trying to we were we were discussing this the other day, like retention for Apple TV, you know, Prime just picked up the uh coming to America too, right? And I watched it and I was like, mm-hmm. God, it was so bad. And it was so bad. I, I, yeah. So bad. <laughs> and, and I haven't watched anything on Prime since then. I, I mean, I love the boys, but there was, I don't remember that slide deck that was just showing like, I mean, I, I'm, I was a huge Ted Lasso fan and I was kind of surprised to see the retention data on Apple TV. Yeah. Um, look, so is I this like, is it a Netflix name- Disney world, you know, and then like maybe a little room for HBO and, and, and let's call it the scripted long form content. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, look, I think when you look at, so first of all, I just want to say like the consumption numbers that get thrown out that around linear TV still being like seven hours a day or something crazy like that. Like, I think all those numbers that are that are provided by like Nielsen and Comscore, like they're, they're somewhat inflated. So I would definitely be taking those with a grain of salt. And then there's also this idea of like, you know, passive versus active viewing, right? Like you just have your those like what's being captioned in those live TV viewing metrics. Like, is it just a TV on at a sports bar? You know, is it just white noise going on in the background of your house? So, you know, I just wanted to, you know, flag that, but in terms of like the future of engagement, look, I think it was a Netflix was going to take kind of winner takes all Netflix was going to monopolize the entire industry. They were going to just disrupt everyone, outbid everyone in terms of content get all the major production heads, all the actors, right? Just, and, and they're starting to do that still in like animation. I think it going forward, you know, Netflix is always going to be kind of dominant. The question becomes, you know, are they going to be 80% of total viewing hours at some point in the future? Or are they going to be 50%? And I, and I think that, you know, Netflix is probably going to settle out to be somewhere between 40 to 50% of total OTT viewing time. And that's that's excluding YouTube. I'm not including YouTube bonus metrics. I'm just thinking about premium video. And that's a big shift. I mean, that's a big shift from kind of the the bull case from several years ago where it was just going to be Netflix. And it comes down to content investment. So you have Disney Plus ramping original content massively. So, you know, a lot of the criticisms around Disney Plus previously was like, oh, it's just like the Mandalorian, who cares? But it's just like that's just a very short-sighted view. That's like saying back in 2016, all Netflix had was House of Cards and criticizing them. You know, it's just like, no, <laughs> like they have this, they have ambitions to, to produce a lot more content. Um, and it's children's content, which is really important. So I think Netflix and Disney are going to be the dominant players, just like Disney's been a dominant player for entertainment for over 100 years. You know, HBO has always been a strong brand. I think investing more in content is important. I do think that launching, and AT&T just announced this morning that they're committing to launching a NAVOD version of HBO Max in June. I do think that that is going to be really important for them to kind of expand their brand and reach into 
the lower income households that may be less inclined to pay $15 a month for HBO content, or they just may not resonate. So looking about like five, seven years from now, what Netflix probably has 30, 40% of engagement, you know, Disney plus and Hulu and that kind of bundle has 15%. And then like the rest is kind of split up between the rest of the players. What could change that is sports potentially. And, you know, I know we're probably going to talk about Fubo TV in a little bit here, but sports shifting to over the top has the potential to really change kind of the engagement game. But, you know, I think to uh, back to your point on like churn and retention, it is going to be one, <laughs> like the name of the game is going to be churn and OTT, right? Direct to consumer. And that is, that is an environment that a lot of these media companies are just not used to because they're used to just getting paid, you know, an affiliate fee per month. That's very sticky for all of charter subscribers. Now they have to deal with churn rates, managing that, which is why I think like the value proposition of a Roku is so interesting because all of a sudden you have this platform from a consumer perspective to manage all your subscriptions. But from a media company standpoint, they have a really big display advertising business, a big audience development business that helps media companies effectively help manage churn and target their consumers and grow their subscriber base, right? Just very similar to how like the Apple App Store works or the Google Play Store works. You need that distribution. So, and for like Ted Lasso, I mean, look, Apple has just been giving their stuff, like they've been perpetuating this free trial forever. And so the retention metrics are probably a little skewed because we don't really know exactly, you know, what the retention looks like for paid. But over time, I would expect that it gets lower as they continue to invest more in content. That's kind of like step number one. And then step two also becomes what is the purpose of this platform, right? So for Apple, Apple, it's like Apple TV is being used as a customer acquisition cost to, to drive more people to the iPhone and drive synergies that way. HBO and AT&T, AT&T is you know, doing the same thing for their fiber customers, right? They're leveraging HBO Max to help reduce churn across other parts of the business. Verizon struck that big deal with, with Disney to do the same thing. You know, whereas you know, Netflix is just a standalone streaming company. And I think part of the reason why their economics, you know, at least so far to date, just haven't been super attractive from a kind of a return on incremental capital spend or just free cash flow has been kind of just non-existent, just reflects the reality that it's really hard to be in the streaming business with all this capital going at it with so much competition on a standalone basis. So it's rambled on. There's a lot in there. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's great. I, mean, I, I think those are, you know, you and I have, have had our, had our Roku chats. I think those are fair points in a, in a noisy world. They obviously benefit, right? From subscription creep, you know, something we were discussing recently, we were talking about it in the Slack and also on Twitter around Stitch Fix, potentially like, you know, whether you run into challenges, newsletters as well around the, the, the Twitter narrative as far as solving certain problems because you got so many subscriptions and churn is going to be a much bigger deal. And people don't think about that. But my question with respect to something like Apple and Amazon, so I get it. I agree with you. It's, you know, it's retention for a different business, not a pure media business. But at what point does it, do they look at it and say, we don't need it for like, I mean, if I, if I, if yeah. I get one show a year, right. A Ted Lasso to me was a fantastic fucking hit. Right. And that's Warner studios, a uh, boys is Warner studios. So mm-hmm. you, you've got, you got AT&T's division pumping out a couple of these things to two global giants, platform, hyperscale, whatever you want to call them, consumer mass brands on earth. And you just kind of wonder, like, do they need to do it? 
Uh, or <laughs> incrementally speaking, it like at what point does the marginal dollar stop? And they say, look, we'll do this many shows a year, and that's it, right? Like, when do we get to that point that like you're just pumping out content that no one, no one will yeah, ever see? They just give up. Yeah, look, I think that's, I mean, and then th that kind of goes back to kind of the scale debate. It's like a great example uh, to kind of level set that part of the, this part of the conversation is Cobra Kai, right? So yeah. Cobra Kai gets released through Google. It's a YouTube original series, and it just kind of falls flat. And YouTube has massive distribution, right? But then all of a sudden, Cobra Kai gets put on Netflix, and it becomes a, a revival. It's a hit. And then I, wa I watched you know, it on YouTube. Well, you were early. I mean, you were one yeah. of the few. Uh, no, but I'm yeah, saying like, for, I mean, like for, 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 for that type of content, that bridge to the, you know, 80s and, and, and that generation, just like a coming to America, I would have paid to go to the movies to see it. And like t 20 minutes in, I'd be like, fuckers, you fucked me. Right. <laughs> you know, like I <laughs> yeah, fell for that exactly. trap because they're playing the nostalgia. They cut him a check. And it's just, you know, Dumb and Dumber 2 was like that. So Yeah, but that's what, I mean, that's, but it works time and time again, right? Yeah, but it, but, but Cobra amazing. Kai, like when, when I watched it, I was like, whoa. Like there's like, there, this could be something a new generation will watch. Right. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. I mean, continue, and, and, continue. No, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, like there's a reason why Disney keeps going back to the well, right? Because nostalgia is a great, nostalgia has a higher ROI attached to it, if, especially if it's done well. Yeah. But I mean, Pixar since they bought it was, was nothing but sequels. Yeah. You know, Marvel, I mean, yeah. And then there's like the whole idea of like just fatigue, right? Or like superhero fatigue and it's all this all this stuff. But I mean, it's, but if you have the brand, I think ultimately it, it's in your fit. You're, you're in well, a I, mean, I think spot. they just proved it with WandaVision. I don't know whether you think this is the case, but I, I had been kind of arguing that there's a risk, even though I'm, I'm a Marvel fanboy and a, and a Disney super fanboy, that, that there's a risk that, you know, at one point the franchise misses a step. And because you're vested into the, into the whole weaving of it, if it misses a step at one point, you're, they, they lose you completely. So when you think about Disney, you know, to this broader point, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to get your, your take on of content. Disney's pumped out the Mandalorian and WandaVision and it's been bang, bang, you know, knocked it out of the park. Right. I don't know what has been pumped out from everybody else. And like, like Netflix, I get what they're doing in terms of the range. But when I think of Apple TV and Amazon, I'm like, like how much longer do you want to stay at this? If Disney's just pumping out two shows and everybody watched them. Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's, Apple has done a really, it, it's, it comes down to your brand, like as a, as a streamer, as a media company, right? Like, what are you trying to do? So in the case of Apple, like they're trying to go after like the old HBO Max, like the old HBO strategy. And I think for a company like Apple that has a very large balance sheet and diversified business, like, look, they can continue to, like Tim Cook can keep this going for a very long period of time. And also you got to keep in mind too, like the production lead times are, are pretty long here, right? So you can buy a lot of stuff, but really, if you're really going to have a long-term strategy, like you're, you're already planning like three, five, seven, ten 10 years out for like what's next. And so at some point, like I do think that we see certain media companies kind of exit. Like, so for example, with Comcast and Peacock, like they've already kind of indicated that they're not going to really, if they don't think that they can turn Peacock into a viable long-term cash flow generating business, that they're not interested in keeping it around. Look at WWE is another really great example of an early kind of niche, uh, albeit demographically challenged content company that was early and direct to consumer that put up really great growth rates. The multiple 
transform to reflect that everyone is super bold up and then they hit a wall because their cams limited. And then all of a sudden now it's a defunct name and they're basically capitulated to transferring over all those subs to being aggregated through Peacock. So then it just becomes, now we're back to the whole, like who had like the value of distribution. So in the case of a Roku or a Peacock or some of these larger streaming services, like they give some of these more sub, these subscale media companies an ability to distribute their content and grow without having to just throw in the towel and say, we're just going to stop. I think that's a bigger risk for more like, you know, AMCX by AMC networks, not AMC entertainment, movie theater company, you know, AMCX has a very long tail of very, these niche kind of streaming services that have somehow managed to just grow (laughs) over the years, but they need a Roku to do so. And you know, I don't know if they're going to be around five years from now. I mean, I, I don't think there's a ton of value. And we, we did a call with the former uh, head of uh, digital at the BBC talking about just this with Acorn TV and being able to leverage kind of the core brands that they have and targeting a demographic that was very passionate about British television. And they were able to scale, you know, pretty well and they found a lot of success. So... I don't know, man. I, I don't know if like we're just going to see this mass exodus. That's obviously the Netflix bull, the bull case, right? Like the Netflix bulls will be vindicated if all these streaming services and media companies just basically exit the market and go back to licensing all their content to Netflix because it's, they realize it's the better business. You know, I don't know if we're ever going to get there. I don't. That's clearly not the direction that everyone's going in today. But I would be surprised if people don't bow out over time, and then. For Apple and just, they're going to continue to invest in hits. They have a pretty high hit rate, all things considered. So it's really going to be the question of, can they continue to just get good um, good reviews from the critics, continue to win awards? And then are they seeing positive consumption trends for iPhones and retention or just overall consumption through their services strategy? Because it's just one part of their broader services strategy tied to music, tied to video, tied to gaming. like. Because that's like the next big step for them is services. So it's part of a broader strategy. So I, I don't think you're going to pin me down and give me, I'm not going to give you like a really solid, like a definitive view because there's so much uncertainty. But access to capital is basically what it comes down to. And is your equity, are you getting rewarded by shareholders? Like, you know, if AT&T stock doesn't go up over time and they're not rewarded because of everything that they're doing for HBO Max and free cash flow continues to be an issue, then, you know, maybe at some point they decided, hey, we are just going to license all of our stuff back to, to Netflix because we'll be able to generate an extra $5 billion a year by licensing our content to them. And our stock price will go up because that's what investors want. So we're in this big experimenting phase that's probably going to last at least another two to three years before you know, people actually have to be held accountable for the results of these businesses. That's pretty thorough as far as the or what we think about as legacy SVOD. What you mentioned, you threw in a couple of times Fubo, and that's, I think, buzzy. It's newer to people's attention. It's a piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so there was the, because there's, you know, Carousel came out short, Einhorn, Green, like there are some names on both sides. Greenlight, I think, invested we were first, really. we, we were first with the short, so, out with the short report, with the short call. So what do you see as the, like, what's this, 
what's going on there? Why is why is the market not with you yet? What are you waiting for, or what what are you looking for as this starts to? Oh man, play like, out? it's a it is a game. Like the VMVPD business is the shittiest damn business you could possibly be in ever. It, it is such a terrible business. You're basically just it's a game of survival because you're paying out almost a hundred percent, if not more of your entire subscription dollar back to the media companies in the form of carriage. And so really the only way that you could ever generate any type of profitability on a sustainable basis is to either A, raise price or B, somehow for your advertising business to a point that it offsets all your other costs. Now, in terms of point number one, like raising price, that is just, it's a fool's game because the whole value proposition of a VMVPD has been the fact that it's been this quote, skinny bundle and they go around touting themselves as this better value compared to pay TV. So yeah, okay, so I, I can go and get Fubo TV for $65 a month and get all the same content that I would be paying maybe $80 for through Comcast, Charter, what have you. And so yeah, that sounds great. So they're trying to capitalize on kind of like that consumer surplus. The issue is that the VMVBDs have no structural cost advantage. If anything, they have a disadvantage because they lack scale to be able to sustain those lower prices. And what we've seen over the last five years, whether since, since these VMVPDs came to market in 2016 with YouTube TV, Hulu with live TV, AT&T's direct TV now, which has since been rebranded, is that they have to continue to raise price because not only they are facing losses on the core business, but they're also facing mid to high single digit content cost increases on the programming side. And so ultimately what happens is that they raise price and then the value gap between the pay TV model, the traditional pay TV subscription closes, churn increases and growth slows. And in the case of Fubo TV, they are not immune at all to, the, to that reality. The question just becomes how long are investors going to continue to give them access to capital to continue to sustain, to fund these losses. And it's kind of like a game of chicken or like a staring match, like who's going to blink first? So the old, like the bull case on Fubo, right? Because I'm not just some blind bear, like I understand what the, the other side of the trade is, is that they're going to be able to just, con- like the market's going to continue to give them capital, that they're just going to be able to outspend their competition in terms of subscriber acquisition because they have this singular focus, because it is a, you know, a live or die situation for David Gandler and the whole Fubo team. And therefore, they're going to start taking market share away from Hulu with live TV, direct TV now, or AT&T TV and YouTube TV. And because they're spending irrationally, more rational economic players from these larger companies are going to say, yeah, this isn't really that big of an important part of the business for us. Our economics are deteriorating, so we're just going to exit. And that is kind of the path to scale and success for Fubo. Now, I would not be betting that that is going to be a successful path. I think that's the low probability outcome, uh, especially with you know Google and YouTube TV having you know three million subs, Hulu Live TV having four million subs. These businesses are also subsidized by other parts of a larger organization that can fund these losses. So unlike Fubo TV that has to rely on the capital markets to make up what they're losing, Disney and Google, AT and T, they have other parts of the business that can make up for it. So it's a structurally unprofitable business. The advertising business is growing fast and they talk about it really positively. But at the end of the day, like they only did $12 million, I think, in advertising revenue about 
$8 in ARPU. Uh, if you look at like peers, maybe they can get like $20 ARPU. Like I know some of the other short courses said like the advertising business is you know, a joke and it kind of is, but like, I think there's actually more real opportunity here than anything else. Like there's opportunity for them to grow advertising. The issue, the issue, the issue, the issue is that even if you assume they can get to like two and a half million subs, $20, $30 ARPU, you don't get a profitable business. They can't even come close to covering their operating expense. So today you're looking at a business where their total cost per subscriber is like 120, 100, like between 120, $130. Like that's all in broadcast transmission fees, carriage, selling and marketing, et cetera, et cetera. General, general administrative expense. So questions for you. So the broken element of that business and, and what it would take to make it work, I think you've nailed that and you've made it very clear. I think where some people don't, and I've seen it on Twitter and I see right now bull market birds are asking, ask him how he really feels about, about FUBU. But uh, <laughs> there's a couple things that I think that people who have come into it, you know, in this speculative market type of environment, that when they want to defend the case for it, there is, well, X, Y, and Z, the media companies invested, number one. Another point that has been tossed around, as Daniel mentioned, Greenlight had, had highlighted. And the third point, which to me was kind of just nonsensical, was the gambling the, yeah. around sports. So, yeah, but what so, I wanted to understand from you, since you've done deep dive work on this, if I looked at their subscribers and you were to give me like a demographic characteristic profile of them, what do they look like? Who's buying the value proposition? Is it a person who's just get who doesn't ha, who has no cable? Is a sports like I I could understand it before when it was like watch European soccer, right, football. But like mm-hmm. today, I like where wh- okay, like if yeah. I, I'm so, just replacing, so, so go ahead. I, I got you, and I, I actually want to hit on those other three points too after I answer this question. So we run a lot of surveys. We don't do a ton of work. I have tried to do a survey of Fubo TV customers. And unfortunately, there's just not enough of them to get a sample. Otherwise, it would to cost like about $3,000 per Fubo TV customer to actually get like a, a statistically reliable view of their, of their base. That being said, if you look at kind of the broader VMPVD user who's subscribing to these services as a whole, not just Fubo, it tends to be more affluent. So they over-index well over $50,000 a year in, in household income. They index even higher over a hundred thousand. So it's a fairly affluent customer base. They typically have children. They typically like to watch live TV and sports specifically, which is, that makes sense, right? Because that's really the only value proposition left for linear T or live TV is, is sports and news. So like, so in that in and of itself, like it's kind of a smaller demographic. Anecdotally, Fubo does have some sports content that is, you know, not available elsewhere, like MSG networks. I was actually speaking with someone yesterday. He's like, I paid for Fubo TV just for that access. Now I can tell you this much, like this one individual is nowhere near close to representative of 98% of the population, right? Which is the biggest issue. So Fubo TV's addressable market is kind of limited in the sense that the whole addressable market for VMVPDs are limited. On top of that, they have this very niche sports-focused brand. And the survey data that we've looked at suggests that the avid sports-focused consumer, the person that's watching like all four leagues, really big into to college basketball, is like 7% of the population. So it's a very, it's a very affluent, very kind of niche, you know, user base. 
which means that they probably do have a little bit more pricing power, all things considered, on their current subscribers. The issue is that if this is a subscriber growth story and they need to get to scale, which is important, that they're never going to get there based on their current branding. So that's kind of the big issue. And then from a wallet share standpoint, there's structural issues related to the BMVBD too, right? Because what we've seen in the last five years is this fragmentation of video, which we talked about at the beginning of this of this conversation. But the missing element, which is incredibly important, is broadband. And so broadband and internet within kind of the bundle, right? So let's say you pay $100 a month all in, maybe $120, let's say $120 a month all in for pay TV plus your broadband. The pay TV portion of that mix has been way too high. It's right. It's been a bubble. It's, it's just been uh, the value proposition is just completely off. And so what we've seen with all these cable companies is ARPU, right, or revenue per user shift to the broadband part of, the, of, of that package because that's where the value is. And so if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, like, yes, we can say that VMPPDs on the app uh, look cheap relative to the pay TV package. But the reality is that you need to factor in your broadband costs. So outside the bundle, in, within a bundle, within a $120 a month bundle, I can get all the same content through pay TV, all this live content that I can get from Fubo TV, plus I get my broadband. If I cut the cord, then all of a sudden my broadband cost is going to go from, let's say, $60 to $80. And then if I want to get Fubo, it's going to cost me $65. So what am I at? I'm already over $130 a month. So economically speaking, I am worse off cutting the cord and subscribing to a VM DVD than I am before. So that's just you know, another structural issue. Yeah, that's, that's and then I'll quick, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So then, and then, and then I'll quickly on the other three things, the media companies being invested is a complete sham, right? It's just a joke. So yes, they were invested, but that was because Fubo was basically trying to stuff their equity down the throats of the larger media companies to try to survive. So they could go to other VCs and other investors and say, Hey, look, we have the media companies as part of this. When in reality, Fubo was not in compliance with any of their carriage agreements. And so they were trying to use their equity as a non-cash currency to offset some of their carriage to pad their P&L because otherwise they would have gone bankrupt because they were bleeding cash. So that's kind of a joke. Greenlight Capital, I have a ton of respect for David Einhorn and the team at Greenlight Capital. So I'm not really going to go there. All I'll say is that they do a lot of, they have a venture arm and they invested early in Fubo TV. So kudos to them. That was a home run. You know, I think if Fubo TV was at $5 a share or $8 a share, I wouldn't, I, I would not be talking about it. Like, because I think, I mean, there's like the argument around, around, you know, a potential asymmetric opportunity, but like, yeah, when you get into, I think, I mean, they leaned in on their note around gambling and they made some points as someone who does live betting, they made some points around, imagine like, you know, if you could bet on whether or not the next free throw goes in and Mm -hmm. I mean, live betting has been something that's been done for a while. And just from a user experience standpoint, it works better to be doing it on another device than the screen because like you kind of want to manage it in real time and you're watching the game in one spot and then you're not, you know, like speed is <laughs> a factor. Yeah, latency is important. But like the markets are not super deep. So like for re- serious gamblers, no big deal. So like this argument that like, this is going to turn it into a gamification platform why would the leagues 
with what they have, be cutting anybody else in on that if they're going to do that. Like I subscribe well, to uh, yeah. almost every package, I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, look, it's not even the leagues. It, I mean, look, the leagues are like, they kind of, more distribution is better, right? For the leagues. So like, that's kind of just like a rule of thumb. B, in terms of kind of like the gamification and, you know, can you bet someone's going to miss like a free throw or, you know, field goal, right? I think latency becomes a big issue and in integration to TV. So even though like it's not synchronous, so there's still like a five and Fubo's latency is decent, all things considered compared to peers, but you're looking at like a five minute lag. So if you're trying to do any type of in-game sports betting directly on the TV and not on an app, it kind of makes it hard. You're trying to have like bring that engagement to the next level. And that's also kind of the value proposition for like live pay TV. The other thing too is like, I'm not a big sports betting guy. We have a gaming, lodging, and leisure team in-house, which are, they do excellent work. So I've been consulting with them and they've done a lot of work on DraftKings and FanDuel and they've done, they're like the acts, I think on the street on, um, when it comes to like regional casino, like the regional gaming companies like Penn and Barstool. But the thing is, like the big gamblers, like the avid gamblers are going to probably have their own bookie, right? So like that's kind of point number one. And then the other point is that what is Fubo's competitive advantage, right? It all comes down to what Fubo's competitive advantage is to drive people to use their platform versus DraftKings versus FanDuel. And it's been a money pit of just a very high subscriber acquisition cost. You can look at the P&L of DraftKings and see how much money they're spending on selling and marketing. Fubo doesn't have enough capital, right? So I think that just to keep the, you know, they just did this $400 million convert approximately. I think that they're going to burn through that by the end of the year and they want to launch a sports book come Q4. So they're going to have to raise probably another $400 million just to keep the core business alive for into 2022. And they're probably going to have to raise at least another 250 to $500 million in capital to, if they have any, you know, if they have a snowball's chance in hell of launching a sports book at scale, right? So you're looking at like another dilution event of almost to the tune of a billion dollars. So that's, that's tough, but you know, you follow the bouncing ball and you think this through logically and you're like, okay, well then what's at the end of the day is the competitive advantage. They don't have any, So they don't have any real unique or exclusive content. They don't have any rights deals. You know, they don't have any strong media brands. They don't have a bar stool. If you look at like a kind of a pseudo like competitor in like Canada, the score, they are just hemorrhaging money. It hasn't really worked for them. And there's, you know, it just comes down to just, again, no competitive advantage. And then like you have Bali and like Sinclair. So all the Fox RSNs are getting rebranded. Sinclair is talking about launching a direct to consumer service for their RSNs, which would be very huge. So then all of a sudden, and like, yes, network has on Amazon. And so, so all of a sudden you have like these avid sports fans, right. That just want to watch their Yankees. They may be willing to pay 30, $40 a month just to get access to the yes network. It's possible. And to kind of tie this all back together, it's like the future, it comes also down to like, so we talked about like why structurally the MVPD business is just a terrible business to be in from a consumer, like just long-term, but even to make it worse, is where's all the content going long-term? Like sports are going to these streaming services like ESPN Plus. Every day, you're just getting more news after the other. Like, you know, exclusive sports rights are going to these other streaming services that you can't, which eats away at Fubo's value proposition. Yeah, we had Captain Twilio had once made an argument for Netflix to buy the NBA. (laughs) 
as a, I mean, as a, I mean, as, look, if you have literally, access to literally, capital, literally, literally, acquire, literally the acquire, acquire the league and make it exclusive on there. <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, ESPN has been very vocal. Uh, Disney has been very vocal recently that no deal will be done that doesn't include ESPN Plus, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that's obviously a, <laughs> a pretty, pretty problematic thing for uh Fubo for a- doesn't have the turner net they don't have turner yeah, right so like i can't, can't watch, can't watch march madness no. it's like you're a sports branded fo- service it's just like and and it's just like the narrative i you know it's hard to say that they're you don't want to say that like a management team is lying because like if i'm david gandler and i am dealing with a business like my business is fubo and i understand just the capital requirements and how they, like how awful it is. Like I'm going to try to sell a good story too because I need capital. I need to convince people. So on the one hand, like what they say in conferences and out to investors, it's it's a it's a nice story. But if you look at their filings and what they disclose in the press releases, it kind of paints a completely different picture. Which is like the like from a short seller's perspective, like that's step one. Like does management's narrative match with the financials and the disclosures that the attorneys make them put in? And in this case, I don't even know. We haven't even gotten a 10K. This company was an $8 billion company. We have not gotten the audited financials. They are in the middle of switching their accountants. Like this is, it's, it's just, it's incredible. And yet people are just willing to bid this thing up. And I just don't think they have but any so idea. Let me ask you a really question about that because it's interesting that like, can this thing just be simplified? I mean, look, with respect to the management, as, as George Costanza once told Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Yep. If people look at, like, if we think about streaming, if people look at Netflix and how they essentially onboarded buying content, you know, cutting the checks to the media companies, I do think that there's a point here when it comes to everybody else in traditional media where it's like, they're not that dumb anymore, right? It's really that simple. You, mm-hmm. When you're making the point on sports, they know that they know what their crown jewels are. And you would have to suspend reality and go back in this like time warp and say FUBU is going to get this like Netflix opportunity where people will give them content till they get to the scale where they have all the subscribers, right? And then they have kind yep. of leverage versus the content. Well, but like, well, FUBU, but back then, like Netflix was like, it was, you can easily make the argument that we're going over the top and like linear was debt. Like that was the thesis back in 20, like forever ago, right? So that you could, you could say like, I believe the future is this xyz like this like streaming is the future time shifted is the future this is what it's going to be s is the future you can't say the same thing with fubo you have to say with a straight face that i think that traditional linear whatever live tv we can just call whatever you want like that is going to be the future of tv and that is like so obviously just not you know not the case but to your point on just survival like Look, the, the other path is that the unit economics continue to deteriorate for the cable companies on pay TV to the point where they exit the market entirely. So what we've seen with like Verizon, for example, is they partnered with YouTube TV for distribution. And so if all of a sudden, at some point, we have this watershed event where all of a sudden all the cable companies decide to exit the pay TV business and instead partner with the VNVPD, you know, that would be a big positive for Fubo. So at some point in the future, but I still don't think that changes the fact that if we think about what the future of content and viewing looks like, it's not live TV. It's going to be the streaming services. Sounds good. I agree. I think we can sum this up with the people made a lot of money on Netflix and people made 
a lot of money on Roku. A lot of money on Roku. Yep. And then, uh, and it, and you know, everyone's a genius in a bull market. Yeah. Fubu <laughs> showed up and it, and it made sense for everybody who was, you know, when you're late in that cycle and a bunch of names come up and it becomes like, you know, you can sell this, you can sell that, right? And if you want to speculate, if you want to go lower down, that you missed this, you missed that one. You, who knows what would happen with this one, right? And I think we've seen that from like a FinTwit type of standpoint. It's been an easy one to put out there in, in this type of environment where retail will eat it up without like the work you just went into. It's complicated when you get into that stuff. So oh, I, I, sure. I, I think people see a couple subscribers and they're like, look, I've seen this story before. I get it in the ground floor here. And that was it. But can we like, I, I mean, we want to, let's pivot. We've given in FUBU enough, enough time. Oh, I did well, want to ask you yeah, one last question. On, I, just, I, just, I just want to say one thing. Roku was trading at two to four, two to three, like around three times sales, right? When it's a hardware business. Okay. FUBU is trading at 8 billion at like 12 times sales, right? So valuation matters, but go ahead. Netflix, quick questions. Two things have happened lately, and, and we have not, you and I have not chatted about them or covered them at all because there's been so many other things going on in the stock market. And, because you know, open up has been you know mm -hmm. more in vogue than you know streaming the, uh, of last year, and like you made the point on Disney. The question, the password sharing. I don't know if you saw that in the news <laughs> and, and the I, Netflix. I did see that, yeah. And the Netflix like re comedy thing. I haven't played with it yet. I don't know if I even can. Uh, I haven't had a chance to yeah, look into this. It, it's like a, it's like the Quibi kind of like short yeah. clips type of a thing. They're like, they're like comedy think, clips. Yeah. What's Netflix going on there? What are they experimenting with? So first of all, Netflix needs to find its next act. They have this, I, I think everyone thought Netflix was going to be a platform that was going to be kind of a two-sided, potentially be a two-sided platform and that they were going to be able to innovate and offer all this new functionality with respect to like interactive media, blah, 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 blah. Like the list goes on, right? Like they're going to get into sports, uh, but they've just been remarkably focused on just scripted original content. And that only gets them so far. So look, I think it's interesting that they're starting to kind of experiment with other things i think that they need to experiment faster if they want to continue to maintain engagement i think it's kind of i, I don't really think this comedy thing is really going to be a game changer i think it's just you know i think it's is, interesting is, 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 i mean like you know he's he's had comments at times where he did call out Fortnite on the gaming one time he's always talked about sleep as competition and before we quickly pivot soon into this audio combo with Spaces and mm -hmm. Clubhouse and Spotify, he's recently also, you know, he's pointed out TikTok, right? So people are like, he's, you know, it's kind of like a TikTok for some of their content yeah. and, and experimenting with kind of a, I mean, I, I will say when I first played with, with Quibi and, you know, I really liked the... Uh, it was interesting, right? It was, it, was, it was an interesting concept. I liked the way the app worked, put it that way. Technologically yeah. speaking, I thought they did a good job with the format of the app. I mean, locking you... Locking you into only watching in that mode during COVID was a big mistake. I also like some of their content, yeah. right? I like the uh, the home remodeling one with our with Arnett, and I I, I really like. Yeah, I mean, look, it was Jeff Katzenberg. He, he knows he he knew what he was doing, right? So like the content was it was just really bad timing, as you as you suggested. But now, hey, but now we can watch it all on Roku. <laughs> exactly. But is is this something where they are now thinking about? Like did Netflix look at Quibi's mobile app and say we can do something like that, or are they were they looking at? I think know, I think TikTok they're looking at that. And, I think and, and thinking yeah. TikTok can you 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 consume like 150 different shows and maybe that drives you to watch something longer form. Is it an engagement play for core Netflix 
I yeah, don't know. I, I think just, it's I'm an engagement. No, I know. I, I think it's an. I think it's an engagement play. I mean, look, every single media executive engagement is the is the lifeblood for any and share of engagement, right? And like, if you're going to be successful in navigating anything in in media, you're basically making a play for where do you think the change in engagement is going, right? It's not like who has the most engagement today. It's it's who's gaining the most. And when we look at the app data. For something like a TikTok, it is just absolutely insane just how fast that business is growing from an engagement standpoint. And so if I'm Netflix and I'm looking at like, you know, my TAM is like there's 24 hours in a day, 365 days in a year, like what's my total waking time like in that period? And then what's my share of that, right? Then they need to figure out a way to continue to keep their content fresh, distribute it, market it in effective ways that is working. So to kind of go the TikTok route, that's interesting. I mean, frankly, they're probably better off just somehow, you know, using those platforms as marketing tools, right? Just advertising on those platforms or using um, their own like celebrities and talent to kind of leverage, you know, their brand. But yeah, we'll see. Netflix needs the next act. And, you know, and it can't just be, we're going to spend more money on big movies and original content. Like they need, they have this great engaged platform, yet they have not been acting like a platform company, tech company. They've been acting like a media company. And the second one, the, the passwords, like is that- Oh, password I mean, sharing. Look, this is like, look, we've been arguing that Netflix has been facing maturity forever in a day. Like, and if you just look at, you know, removing free trials, growth slowing in subscribers at, um, over like a three-year duration or two-year even, um, if you look at what they're trying to do is like, they're knocking down the pins, right? So the password sharing is just one, it's kind of like the last thing that they have. Like, so they're raising price, their uh, subscriber growth is slowing. So they're raising price more aggressively. Now they're going into password sharing, like knocking that down, which actually could be, could actually work against them in some ways because having, you know, for a lot of companies, like you almost don't care if people are sharing passwords because that means that your content's getting out there more. But, and when you're already at, when your awareness is already so high, then there's not as much value in that, right? So I think that it's just kind of the natural progression of them trying to just squeeze more dollars out of their subscriber base. And it probably also gives them a, a, subscri- a subscriber lift in the short term. I think, I, you know, I, I'm going to misquote this. We, we did a, we've done tons of survey work and I, I know the percentage of subs that are kind of password sharing. So to the extent that they can get like, it's not a high percentage, but to the extent that by doing this, they can like get 30% of those that helps, you know, subscriber growth, you know, in the second quarter or in the third quarter, right? So I think it's just, you know, it makes sense. People have been talking about it for a while, but I think it's just a sign of a maturing business model than anything else. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, what what it contributes to economically, if, if they can get that, I, was, I think is potentially interesting. Oh, it's but positive. Yeah. You're, you're, it's you're, like you, as, far, right? as, far, as far as the, the life cycle of the business, I, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, I've liked the stock. I think I personally think it's where they're at. The story with Netflix goes back to, as as far as recently, an undervalued content proposition for people. And I think it's demonstrated itself with all the competition that it is kind of buried in there nicely. But it let's is, move on. But, but look, in, in all fairness, though, like we're not, it's still like, we'll see where they are five years from now when all these other services are scaled. But I agree. Like, I think that it's, it's a good value proposition, but we don't need to beat that. that because I don't think they need to spend more on content from here. And I think they're running the model. Again, they can pull the levers, right? And and this will also have to depend on like this goes back to what we we're talking about with everybody else is 
like everybody else is so far behind in terms of what they're spending. Disney's about to step it up notably, but even there, it doesn't yeah. really come close to what they're doing. Well, look, I look, it's all about return on content spend, right? So Netflix has to spend like a drunken sailor because they don't have any strong brands that they can leverage and go after, right? It becomes a game of odds, right? They just need to continue to produce as much stuff as they possibly can in order to build that brand in order to yeah, it's to, not a franchise business which goes back to it but at the yeah. same time they have brought in creators we've seen what they can do you, you bring a cobra kai you've developed a black mirror you've got these things like th- those to me are franchises now i'm waiting for the next black yep. mirror i like that I, I like what they do there but let's go to let's go to Anya. Yep. daniel daniel yeah i think guys we're gonna we're probably close enough to where we need to kind of go lightning round here but andrew you mentioned audio earlier and yep. so tell us what's interesting to you about the audio space right now. What are you watching? You're, I, I saw you're kind of more bullish on Twitter, a little less bullish on Spotify. What are you seeing that's really your focus there? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I, I cannot be more excited for Twitter and spaces and for what that can do to drive overall engagement on Twitter. You know, it's amazing. It, it's just like, look, it's innovation cycles. What's old is new again, right? So. You know, you wake up, you know, you pour your cup of coffee, you get into your car, at, you know, 530 in the morning, get on the highway, a 40 minute commute, and you listen to your local, you know, disc jockey, radio talk show. Maybe they're doing some, some trivia, you know, uh, or they like have this segment where people can call and ask questions and it's engaging, right? It, and, and people enjoy it. Now, you know, terrestrial radio broadcast, that's kind of like a mature and it's not dying business. But if we think about how audio has kind of evolved over the years, it's very similar, right? So like you had podcasting, which is kind of like the talk show. But now with, with Spaces and Clubhouse, you're bringing that live element right to audio. So I think it has the ability to just drive a lot more engagement and time spent on Twitter as a platform. And again, as I said before, like the way I think you win in internet and media is all about who's going to be taking share of engagement at an accelerating rate. And so we already know that Twitter is the power of Twitter as a platform. We're all power users. And the idea of launching spaces just provides another element where maybe I'm not going to be looking through my Twitter stream every single minute of every single day, but maybe I'll, you know, have more, uh, I'll be listening to these spaces and just, it's a different form of consumption, right? And there's a lot of time in a day that helps them take share. So I think ultimately it's going to really drive help drive engagement. From a monetization standpoint, look, there's a lot of different ways that they can go out, go about it. I mean, I think this whole tip jar concept is wildly interesting. You know, I could totally see, you know, in FinTwit, bull bear debates going on and, you know, maybe people throw like 25 cents or like whatever to like whoever they think they're doing better, like, you know, who's doing better in the fight, right? It's like a boxing fight, you're throwing cash in the ring. And maybe that's kind of like a, a cute concept that I'm throwing out there. But, you know, I, I think it just speaks to just the overall potential of this as a new engagement medium and to take the platform to a completely a new level. And then, you know, from a, to feed the beast, like, what is it? Like, so you go in and create a space and you, we have a like, so for example, we're recording this podcast right now, but we could absolutely be doing this also live on space. Yeah, when are, you, when are, when are we going to get an Andrew Twitter space? Dude, I, you know, I, I, I got to either I got to switch over the iPhone. I've been, you know, I'm a Samsung, I'm an Android user and it hasn't been working, but it looks like they're going mainstream in, in April. So, I, you know, hopefully that works. 
but I'm going to be using it. And and then, you know, so we could do this. And then all of a sudden, what if you can all of a sudden record that? I mean, it's and great, it's great it. for your guys' business model, by the way. Right. So like if they get, once they add private rooms for like for Hedgeye, I mean, like you can put out your report and then you can bring your clients in whether you don't need to be doing any, I mean, I'm assuming you guys have webinars or whatever, but like you can do two, two tiers, even you can move it all onto spaces. You can host your own regular room and then you yeah, can have we, your yeah, there, room. Oh yeah. I mean, look, that's what I love about Hedgeye. I mean, we're just like, look, we're, I think we do really great research. We have a great team. I think we have a great media asset too, but it's also to your point, like we have this in-house media capability, but can we leverage, you know, out like our business was like Twitter is a huge part of the success of Hedgeye. And so, you know, being able to do this audio space and being able to engage our, our, our subscribers or even non-subscribers or whoever, and using that as a tool to just hopefully drive, you know, that content flywheel that we're trying to build is, you know, incredibly valuable. So I, I'm super pulled up. I think podcasting is a very crowded space generally. And I'm actually like, I think Spotify is interesting, not, I think Spotify is interesting as a platform. Right. So I get asked a lot, like, how could you be, how could you like Spotify and also be bearish on Netflix? It's because it's like high content costs, like not a lot of free cash flow, et cetera, et cetera. Original content strategies, the similar. But where, what I come back down to is like the optionality and the value proposition of, a, of being a truly a, a platform. Right. And so in the case of Spotify, the holy grail is being like this two sided marketplace. Can you create a marketplace that allows artists to monetize better, engage with their customers better, to be this more interactive discovery platform? Like, I think that there's a lot of interesting ways that Spotify. As, as kind of like a tech company, differentiate is much more differentiated than Netflix, which has just kind of turned into more of a media company. Um, and also just by way of like the landscape, right? Like, and I'm, I know I'm kind of going a little bit off topic here, but like with Spotify, for example, I don't think the, the music labels are going to go off and launch their own streaming services with all their licenses anytime soon. That's what we saw with Netflix and the video space is that all the content companies like Disney had launched their own streaming service to compete directly with Netflix. I think it's much more a symbiotic relationship with the licensed companies. And, you know, there is a path to higher margins over time for Spotify um, and differentiate themselves. But yeah, look, I think Spaces is awesome. I think it's going to be, you know, we'll see at this age as well. Have you used Clubhouse at all? I have, I'm not, an, I have an Android. So I'm like totally, I mean, I've, oh, I've seen right. other people use <laughs> it. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm just yeah, like, you know, they discriminate, they discriminate against us. I, I just, it's just not fair. <laughs> I will tell you because you covered the uh, one interesting thing that uh, use case wise, which uh, I haven't seen on Twitter yet. And we had Ned Siegel, the CFO of Twitter, popped into the uh, to the space I was hosting the other night, and like you know everybody oh, cool. everybody kind of went crazy, and we got to ask him some questions. And one of the things we we kind of we were talking about is Facebook is imminently is going to be launching an audio play, and there are use cases around the financials that like are very clear to us using Twitter Spaces, and like I can't see from an interest graph standpoint. We, we were discussing that with him, but I was on a Clubhouse, you know, where like there was a, like this comedy fake Howard Stern guy, which I thought was hilarious, and and listening to that, and like you know there was 10, 15 people, and it was like being managed together. You know, like uh, you know, almost like a complicated jerky boy setup, right? Which I, I don't mm-hmm. even think you could have done in like an, in a studio because you couldn't have put that many people together. But there's a show that I, I randomly went into, which was like a, it's like these NYU girls who host a dating show called Shoot Your Shot on Clubhouse. <laughs> so they yeah. have like it's like you know eight or nine ex NYU girls, and 
They've got Instagram profiles. It seems like they're influencers. And guys come in and like shoot their shot. And then like the girl, when the girl's done, she's like slide into my DMs on Instagram. So there's like, yeah, is, is this something we could, we'll, we'll end up seeing in like Bumble or Match or oh, Tinder? I, I mean, I think I, I, are I, they going to integrate that? Are they going to host them on Clubhouse? Like it, does this no, go? I, in, I think look, it, it feeds in directly to it. I don't think they're, I think Match, they'll advertise, right? Like that's, and that's where it comes down to, right? Like they will strike agreement with these NYU girls as sponsors, uh, as influencers, or once the ad tech becomes available and the inventory becomes available, then like a match will start using these as a way to kind of to place ads, like similar to like a, the YouTube model, except for audio. But but you bring up like the really fascinating use case beyond that. It's just like, okay, can you integrate commerce into that? Can you like, what are the applications? Like can, then all of a sudden you have curation. Like, so what happens if, like Andrew Friedman at Hedgeye does like a you know a spaces at two p a, a show two p.m. on spaces every single Friday. Can I then market that? Like, will I I will spend advertising dollars potentially to get that in front of more people to build my audience? And then can Twitter create some type of scheduling system where you could actually see and all the you know all the top spaces that are going on? And then even more importantly, can you provide like the creator or the host of those space, any type of, any type of engagement metrics? It is just, it just takes this platform to another level. And, and I know you mentioned Facebook and Insta- Facebook trying to make a play for this space, like no pun intended, but look, Facebook, I, I actually, I like Facebook. Like I think it's fair to say, I, I think stuff has kind of a tough road from a policy standpoint. I think the stock's pretty attractive here, but from a, from a business standpoint, like, I don't like they're just trying to replicate everybody else. And I think I think spaces is going to be very hard for them to be successful in because Facebook and Instagram don't naturally lend itself to the same type of conversation that Twitter has. Right. And so that's why I'm so, so even, even more excited, because it's just a natural evolution of the use case for Twitter, whereas for Facebook, it's not the case. Um, especially for a lot of their power users. And then there was a, if we look at like similar web data, like I think it's like something like 20 to 30% of actually all tr- inbound traffic to Clubhouse is coming from Twitter, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I, I think that, and, and everybody advertises, everyone's like t- using Twitter trying to talk about their Clubhouse, but everyone's already on Twitter naturally first. So I do think that spaces, if it's done well, if it's curated properly, and the experience is is good for everybody involved. That it does represent a big threat to Clubhouse in, in the short term, and then long term, like maybe you know Clubhouse, I think has like a, a one billion dollar like valuation or whatever it is. That's I think the last number I heard. But like maybe Twitter buys it. I don't think they have to, but that's always kind of the option on the table as well. I, mean, that's, I, don't, I definitely don't think they would they would go in that direction with Clubhouse. But may, but but would a Spotify go in that direction? They should. I mean, one of the things that kills me about Spotify, you know, they had their investor day and I thought a lot of the initiatives that they laid out around a la carte subscriptions and monetization were like interesting. I, I, I just, I wish they were to, I wish they moved faster. And so I don't think that, I, don't, I just don't think Spotify has it in their DNA to like incorporate like clubhouse space type functionality. I think it would be that the value proposition for them would to be to integrate it more, meaning like we record a space and then you distribute it via podcast through Spotify. That could be interesting. But I think in terms of what Spotify's value proposition is, I'm not sure. I think it's probably a better medium 
if they can interact, like leverage it for like big time artists, which I guess the artists could just go to the clubhouse route too. I'm kind of just thinking out loud. So like, why go through Spotify? But Spotify has the brand, people are already listening. But that's the other reason why I've become like a little bit more bare, uh, like not bare, like less bullish on Spotify is because like I can see how big spaces and clubhouse could potentially be. And I think that it could be a, a more of a threat to them over the long term, unless if they move faster than they already are. So that's kind of my initial thoughts. Excellent. Daniel, we've got some questions coming in here. I see Palmetto Capital is asking you, and he's, he's, a, he's a good follow, uh, big Twitter bull. How does pins do in a reopening Pinterest? Not well. So look, pins, Pinterest benefits. He's not going to like lot. that because he's, 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 on a, he's on the live events. Oh, well, look, I think, I think Pinterest is a very, first of all, I, I think long-term Pinterest is a very unique asset and that we can talk about that another time. And it's differentiated from a brand perspective, brand safety standpoint. There's, I mean, the fact that ad load isn't an issue because ads are incidental to the platform is a huge plus. The issue, and, and this is not just a Pinterest issue, it's a whole like digital issue, right? It's like you come up against tough COVID comps, right? So that's a, a potential negative. And then, you know, we know that Pinterest benefited tremendously from, you know, the DIY kind of stay at home trend. And, you know, in a reopening scenario. What's a bigger market? What, what, like, I think this is what, 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 what he's trying to get at because I know he's mentioned it because I, I, I'm in agreement with you, right? I think uh, I've, I've cut, well, I mean, I've kind of, pointed out as far as I didn't have any empirical evidence, by the way, for it, just a view yeah. that, you know, Pinterest was one of those things where we were discussing this with Stitch Fix, like Stitch Fix is great in a world where you're moving around a lot and you come home and they send you something once a month. But if you have nothing but time and you're on like the 19th thing you ordered on Instagram and you can surf Pinterest all day long, you know, someone curating something for you and sending it to you to save you some time, potentially. As yeah. one Look, of the I, yeah. model doesn't work. In his case, he would say that travel, I'm not so sure on travel, but defi- definitely weddings. Travel, wedding, yeah, travel, weddings, going back. So so the checks that I've, yes. I, so I think on a net basis, if we think about time spent broadly, I think the reopening is a negative. I think people spend less time on Pinterest than they were doing into COVID, right? So if we're just specifically isolating the reopening trade variable, then I think that it's hard to make the argument on a overall that it's going to be a net positive. That being said, you know, yeah, but the, the other thing with, um, with the, the feedback that I've gotten from agencies is like what happened with weddings, for example, is that they were canceled. And so people were spending more time. Like they, it just, it, it expanded the duration of time that people were spending on Pinterest because their weddings got pushed out. So I, I think that there's some interesting use cases. Yes, tra- but, but travel is also leading. Right. So the, the beauty of, of the Pinterest platform is that it is a it's like a three to six month lead time. It's really focused on intent. So everyone is in the last three months has been looking at travel, right? Because they just can't wait to get the hell out of their house and go to the beach or like go go travel somewhere, right? But then what happens when we actually hit the reopening? Then they're gonna be traveling, right? They're gonna be outside their house. They're not gonna be as engaged exactly. on the platform. Okay. So I like that. that's, that's like kind of how I'm I like that rationale. It. All right, next question. Let's go make this a Elliot Turner wants to know what is worth more 10 years from now. I think you saw that one, Twitter or Roku. 10 years. 
Oh man! Um, from this price, I'm gonna say. I think you'll. I think Twitter. you'll be good on this one. That you don't want to be able to hold. I you think. To. Yeah, I'm gonna say Twitter. I'm gonna say Twitter. I, no, I think. No, I, um, I mean, there's only uh, there's only one answer allowed on the show. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think it's Twitter. I think Twitter. I mean, based on the path that they're going down now. Look, I love Roku. I think that, but Roku has. From, do you, from do here, you think there's a risk that one day that there's a new smart home like super app? that you just like you walk in and it's yep. like Andrew you're watching this and uh like that's the new Roku platform there, and it's there, signed yeah, the deals yeah there there is yeah i mean look there is risk to google amazon like there it is a it like Roku AI has just a gets that platform yes yeah, like maybe over 20 years i don't know we're all dead in the long run but you know the the point is it, 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 it's like i think that twitter as a platform the barriers to entry the brand power of Twitter, I think it's just much harder to replicate. And so therefore there's less risk of getting disintermediated as a platform than there is with the Roku. Albeit, I think Roku is like as a play on global TV advertising and the moves that they've made in the ad tech side really makes them really hard to kind of re- like replace. But I think it's just, you know, given everything that I'm seeing, you know, 10 years is a long time. I, I, you know, I would say like Twitter over three years should outperform Roku. But again, these are all like good management team. Well, <laughs> sorry. Roku is a good management team. Twitter, less of reliable hey, management we, team, we, we but can't, seems, seems uh, to be getting CFO, around. CFO came into the spaces. We can say nothing bad ever again. I, it, no, technically, I, I like, we, and I, I yeah. like Ned. I think Ned, I, I, no, no, but I, He's I great, like dude. Ned. He's I mean, great. I, I think Ned, I think Ned's good. I, I, and look, they've been, for all the hate, they've been turning it around. And I also think that people just kind of maybe were like hated too much just around the challenges that Twitter really faced for a long period of time around just, you know, safety and the wellness of the platform, right? Because it, because it's such a unique use case and it's so much anonymous, so many anonymous users that it can like really turn into like a cesspool of just trolls and fraud. And that, that's how the, the platform dies. So if you, if they felt like they need to spend three to five years to figure that out, to make sure that to prevent the platform from just atrophying in the long term, then that's great. You know, sure. I mean, it was painful for investors. And then, like, look, they rebuilt the whole ad ad server, so like they're they're iterating faster. So I I'm super encouraged. I think Twitter is probably going to be the best performing is going to be the best performing internet name this year. I think between Facebook. Well, we we we, 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 we like we, we like we like that we like that view. All right, here's another one. Can you you get his thought? Zero Krog asks. Can you get his thoughts on the Square acquisition of Tidal and how that will affect the way that artists get paid? I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that. Yeah, no, I saw that. Uh, look, it's the whole, like I said it kind of earlier, like alluded to the holy grail in music and audio from the artist standpoint is getting this two-sided marketplace off the ground, right? Like, can we disintermediate the music labels and the stranglehold that they have on the industry? Because it's very questionable what their value proposition brings to the table in a world where you can go viral overnight in a digital world. Like, you know, 30 years ago when A&R was basically, you're going hopping from club to club to find the next big hit. And you, and, you know, we're in a physical world of vinyl sales and CDs where you needed that capital infusion to really grow as an artist. Like that's, that is one, that is an entirely different world than we're in today. And so now it's like, can this two-sided marketplace work? And so that's the play, like, so... Uh, Spotify has tried to, to try to do that. And part of the reason why they haven't been able to move faster is because they can't piss off the music labels because if they lose that, then they'll just go to Apple or Amazon, right? And so that's not good for their platform. 
And so they actually tried to launch like this ability for artists to upload their content on the platform directly, which got, which got shut down very quickly. Um, and so now Tidal is trying to do the same thing, you know, with Square. I think it's going to be like, I think it's more of less one of Jack's experiments. It's a nice idea, but I don't think Tidal is going to be like, doesn't have the scale or the reach. And I don't think that major artists are going to be looking at these platforms as a way to monetize. Like if you look at like a Sirius XM, for example, and we just hosted a call yesterday uh, with a former executive there, but like there's other ways for artists to make money through these large platforms than just direct monetization through like a square fan type based app. Like you could strike a sponsorship deal with Spotify to have like an exclusive show on your, on your platform. So there's a lot more that goes on behind it. Like there's a lot more to it than just what I just said, but I don't think that title and square combined is really going to be a game changer in terms of the way the artist gets paid. I mean, it probably helps some of the smaller artists potentially, right? So what we have also seen is the share of independent artists. Uh, if we look at like total revenue in the industry, like the share of independent artists has been going up and up and up. And that's because you have streaming platforms and you have these third-party services where you can upload all your content to it and you can just don't have to pay a cut back to the labels. So it exists. Like there are mechanisms in the market today for independent artists to get paid in streaming that doesn't require a cash app integration. So yeah, that's kind of, that's all I'll say about that. All right. Last question that's on here. Unless Daniel, if you've seen any other ones, match versus Bumble. Match over Bumble. I'll be, yeah. Match over Bumble. I think both are going to do well in reopening, but I would 100% at this point be going match at this price. And I think Bumble probably sets up for a short in the back half of this year. All right. I think that's it from from the Twitter. Uh, Daniel, anything you want to ask him? No, I think we cut. There were a couple other questions, but I think we covered them in the in the flow of the conversation. And I know you've been super generous with your time, Andrew. So I don't want to. Sort of yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I gotta, I gotta run. I get to talk to, I, I get to talk Fubo with, with a bunch of another group. So kind of, I'm on a, <laughs> I'm on a Fubo Bear tour. You know, I'm loving it. So. Well, well, we got to warm you up at least for it. So, well. yeah, no, this is great. I hope this was good, guys. I really appreciate it. it. Was excellent. Um, you know, maybe, yeah, thank really you so much, it. Andrew. This has been a blast. So appreciate you coming. Awesome. On. Well, have have a good weekend, guys. Take uh, care. You too. Take yeah. care. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Sokel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.